Yes, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's get a look, take, take a little getting used to. I'll have to be on a swivel here. If I ignore you or I ignore you, I apologize. So this is a little, uh, what do you call this shape? Do we have a name for this shape here? No, we don't. <laughs> we don't have a name for it. Okay, well, that's the goal for the end of uh, today. We'll have a name for the shape of this room for the next speaker to prepare him to do some chiropractic care in advance. So um, I know most of you don't probably have a context for me, so I just thought maybe a quick a quick introduction to, to give you some context and then maybe give you some some of what I would hope you would get from this session from me, from me and then the second session from me. Uh, so my name is Jason Wood. I grew up in uh, North Dakota. That's my home state. If, if we got any North Dakotans in here? <laughs> what? Are you really? Or are you just lying? Why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> freezing is freezing is the reason. So uh, I actually was born in Minot, North Dakota, and uh, so uh, now both you and I are here. No one's left to watch the sheep. But um, so we moved out to Wisconsin probably uh, just about three years ago, and and I'll be sharing that story as part of my second session to give you context. So. Uh, married to a wonderful wife. Her name's Trista. She's a school psychologist up in Waupon. Uh, we have four little children, and uh, I won't do their ages, but their grades are sixth, sixth grade. Uh, I won't do their grades either. Uh, third grade, <laughs> kindergarten, and then we just had, we just had our, new, uh, our new miracle baby, baby JL. She's four months old, so we're pretty... But, and, and then everyone, I, we can tell people, there's a bunch of leaders here, so you'll get this. But when we named her JL, we had just a whole bunch of uh, crotchety people who were like, what? Where'd you get that name from? And, uh, of course, as any of you know, uh, JL comes to us from the book of Judges. She's the woman who drives this, the tent stake through the head of Sisera. And she has red hair. So I said, no one's going no to mess with our baby JL. So she's... Uh, Four months old, and, and, and we're, so I got, out of, I got out of some family time to be here. When I was asked to do this, um, I, get asked, I get asked to speak at a lot of different things, <clears throat> and I always, I, I used to just say yes because of my flesh. You know, we all want to, right? We all want to feel like we're important and we're good. And then, and then I realized, you know, like I would go speak to little kids, or I'd speak to teenagers, and I'm like, I don't really even like these people. Why am I... And so I just say no usually, and then when Greg asked me to speak to the leaders here, I said, you know, that's a group of people that would be, would be an honor for me to come speak to. So I really, as much as some of you have said you appreciate me coming here, I, I really appreciate you having me, and it's an honor. And know that I've been deep in prayer uh, for the last several weeks, <clears throat> and a lot of that prayer has just been thanksgiving that I get to be here with you this morning and it's also a subject that is, that is very near and dear to my heart. It's on caring for others. Uh, if, if, if you've never taken a spiritual gifts assessment, I would guess most of you have. If you haven't, I would look into that to find out where your giftings lie. Uh, my spiritual gifts, the one that comes up continually at the, at the, at the highest is shepherding, caring for others, as I would assume many of yours is. And so this topic is near and dear to me. And when I was asked to kind of share on caring for those who are struggling, 
I also, I also kind of changed a little bit, um, and then caring for ourselves. So the first session is going to be caring for others, since you're all leaders and you all have this, uh, re- not only responsibility, I think we all have responsibility as believers to care for others, but you have this um, ministry of caring for others. And so we're going to talk about that. And, and I'm going to just share kind of my philosophy of care ministry, and you can, you can glean from that. You can eat the hay, spit out the stubble, take what you want, leave the rest. But it comes back to my very, uh, my very first real counseling um, faux pas or struggle or when I hit a wall and I realized I didn't know as, as much as I thought I knew. So I was serving at a church as the, uh, the associate pastor. We were a smaller church. We, we maybe ran 200 or so on a Sunday. So, so a little bit bigger than everyone in this room, but not much bigger. And the lead pastor that I worked for, <clears throat> he, he had no interest to do one-on-one counseling, pastoral counseling, um, personal shepherding. It just wasn't his gift. He was gifted in other ways. And so when I was hired, um, it became very clear that uh, he was happy to hand off that work to me, and I was very happy to take that work. And so uh, at that time, I was... 23, 24, 25 years old, and, and I, didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, and so people would, would come to me, and I felt, you know, like, remember those magic eight balls? You know, you shake them and be like, it does not look good for you, you know, and so I felt like I was people's magic eight balls. They'd come to me, and they would tell me their problems, and I'd be like, give me a second, and I'd run some numbers, and I'd be like, here's what you should do, and, and I would give them advice, um, which is actually not counseling, um, it's actually not even good shepherding. Most people aren't looking for suggestions in, on how to fix their problems uh, because they actually already have uh, all of the variables, and in fact, they have more variables than you have. Um, and so when people come to us or when we go to people who are struggling, very, very seldom, I won't say always because sometimes there are people who just need life coaching, but for, for the vast majority of people, they've tried everything, and they're at a place where they're stuck. And so when people would come to me, I would give them a solution, and then they would walk away, and then they would do the worst thing ever. They'd come back and be like, oh, you're just so good at this, right? And so that, that builds you up in yourself, and it builds you up in your flesh. And so I had, I had convinced myself that I was, a, I was a pretty good counselor, when really what I was doing was was not counseling. And so uh, not only did I get so good at it, we had people who would uh, tell their friends, hey, if you have problems, go see Pastor Jason. He loves doing this stuff. And so one day uh, I, I had this this lady coming to meet with me. I never met her. She didn't come to our church. She was a friend of a friend f- from our church. So So twice removed. And she comes walking into my office. I have no context for her. She's probably 25 years old. Um, and, and I remember looking up, and, uh, and the first thing I thought was, this is a beautiful woman. Now, not, not, in, a, not in a lustful, sinful way. She just had a beauty that shocked me. Um, and so she sat down, and I was like, so you're, you're here to see me, and, and what can I do for you? And she, uh, and now, a scale of 1 to 10, she's a 10, right? And she, she looks up at me and she says, um, my, my husband won't sleep with me. Now, if your only tool to help people is giving them suggestions, and the most beautiful woman that you've probably ever had come in your office comes into your office and sits down and says, my husband won't sleep with me, uh, what, what do you say to that? 
I, I, I can't remember what I said. Um, I remember kind of having like the, you know, the diarrhea of the mouth where you just say a whole bunch of, you know, you just keep speaking, but you don't really say anything, you know, and you just, you keep looking at your watch. Is this hour up yet? You know, can we get, you know, and, and, uh, and anyway, she left and she, she, uh, she never came back, which I, I won't, I won't blame her. I, I don't think I hurt her. I don't think I was offensive. I don't think I was abrasive. I don't think I was any of those things, but I wasn't helpful. And, uh, it was, it was shortly after that that I actually, uh, I was done with school. I actually enrolled in a, um, a master's program for counseling because it hit me that I didn't really know how to care for people like I thought I cared for people. You see, if, if, if it hurts when, when you do this, you just tell people, well, then don't do that. But what if that's not the logical response? What if everything in their, in their life they're doing right and still they keep hitting walls? What if every time they, they try and do something godly, it seems that it, it blows up in their face? It, what, what then? And so I formed, a, I, I formed a philosophy of care or a model of care, which is, which is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. But it's kind of the model that I, that I follow. And I think it'll be helpful for, for you and many of you because uh, I would assume I'm going to make bold assumptions. Uh, some of you are probably very confident in helping others. And then the rest of us, the vast majority of us, probably wonder, like, how do I help others? I don't feel confident in helping others. And so I want to share some, some really usable and, and probably, hopefully, inspirational aspects of helping others. So first of all, you can see I, there's notes. Um, you could probably tell right away with my page. I, Greg already knows this about me. I'm not an attention to detail guy, and I'm not a structure guy. And so they're very, they're very slim pickings notes, and that was pulling teeth for me to even do that. So uh, if you want to write things down, I gave you lots of white spaces on the page to write things down, but there's not actually a lot of fill in the blanks or anything like that. I look at the other presenter stuff, and I'm just amazed at their giftings, and then I, then I think, well, they're probably bad shepherds or something like that. They're really, <laughs> they're really, good, at, they're really good at details, but I know people. Um, so you can write things down if you want. There is one typo because I had to do this, and uh, so, so I gave you the wrong text in one of those spots, so if any of you worked ahead, you're probably like, what? There's, there's nothing cryptic in there. I just gave you the wrong text. So um, first, we've got to understand... <clears throat> Our call as believers to help others. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we have just a general call as believers, every one of us, to bear each other's burdens. It's, it's, it's a non-negotiable. It's kind of like one of those, it's kind of like when, when, when we do our membership class, we give spiritual gifts assessments, and almost never do we have someone who scores really high in evangelist right? Uh, the, the Billy Grahams of the world, you know, you hear their stories and they make you, you, they make you embarrassed or frustrated. You know, they, they, they get on the bus and, and someone says, is this seat saved? And they say, no, but I am. And they lead that guy to the Lord. You know, we, the, the evangelist, like we know that guy's out there or that, or that lady's out there, but most of us don't score very high on evangelism, but we all feel a call to evangelize and we all should evangelize. All right? So, so this isn't just a gifting thing. You can't just say, um, well, I'm not really a shepherd. I, I'm not really good at caring for others. Because Paul says in Galatians, it's your responsibility as a believer, as a disciple, to bear with one another, to help carry their struggle. Um, this room even has maybe a higher degree of accountability. 
Because these are, these are leaders in this room, right? We've been identified as leaders, people who have been uh, called and placed in special places to provide leadership and care for others. And so, so Romans 15, Paul goes on to flesh it out more, and he says, we who are strong, leaders, so I don't feel strong. Well, you're a leader, you're strong. Have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his, for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So we just have a, we have a responsibility first as just believers to care for others. But those of us who, who have accepted Christ's call and have been given special leadership opportunities, we have a different layer even or different uh, ex- expectation of how we care for others. So, so, so we can just cover that. All of you need to care, myself included. And, and as leaders, we all need to care, if you will, even a little bit more. Here's where I gave you the wrong text. Why do we care for others? That should be Matthew 5.16. Um, Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. We care for others, because it brings God glory. We care for others because it leads others into life-giving relationships with the Father. Uh, we have that saying, you hear it all the time, people don't, people don't know how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that, that's a colloquialism, it's true. It really doesn't matter what you know if you don't care. But, but how do we show we care and why do we show we care? Well, we show we care by being with people and carrying their burdens as Paul commands us, but we do it for the glory of God. That's why we do it. I think about this often because <clears throat> I, I, I have within, in my own personality, the power of persuasion, right? Something I've always been good at as a kid, you know, getting, getting your neighbor to paint the white fe- fence, you know, the Huckleberry Finn. Type. I've always had the power of persuasion. I always think, I should be doing real estate. <laughs> you know, I could, I could really financially do well for myself if I did real estate. I could convince people that that house isn't as bad as they think it is, and you can knock the popcorn ceiling off and all that stuff. And, and so I, I always think I should do but then I go, but that's not my call. For any of you who are real estate agents, I'm not knocking you. That's your call. Um, so we might want to use our gifts for ourselves. And most people do use their gifts for themselves, but then there's the leaders in, in Christ's church who say, God, you gave me these gifts. I'm going to answer to you for what I do with these gifts. Help me to use these gifts. And so that's what we're doing in here. So how do we use our gifts to bring God glory? Caring for others. So um, my model of care comes from a guy by the name of Job. <clears throat> Job is a fantastic book. Uh, if you have any Jewish friends, um, you need to talk to them about Job because Job just messes them up. They don't know what to do with with Job. When I did my, my master's work in divinity, this was my, my thesis subject, was Job. Uh, who wrote the book of Job and when? Uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have concrete answers. Uh, we're, we're pretty convinced Job is the oldest book in the Bible, that it's, it's, it's old. Uh, we're, we're also sure that Job is not a Jew. He's not part of the covenant. And so he's this anomaly. And, and Job gets preached by well-intentioned preachers in lots of wrong ways. Uh, I don't think heretical ways. I don't think uh, you would fall outside of orthodox belief the way Job is preached. But Job's uh, purpose is actually very simple. Job's purpose is to reveal to Satan that Satan does not hold the power to pull one of God's children from him. That's the purpose of Job. 
Job reveals to Satan that no matter what Satan does, he actually can't pull us from the love of God. Paul goes on to confirm this later in the New Testament. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so that's the purpose of Job. But Job has this fantastic story of, of, oh, Murphy's Law, if you will. Anything that can go wrong does go wrong. Remember, we come across Job, and Job is the greatest man in the East. He's got everything going for him. He's got seven sons. He's got three daughters. He's got 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, too many servants to count, and one Nagy wife. Now, we're going to talk about the Nagy wife because she gets a bad rap in this story. That's one way that Job gets preached wrong. Um, Job's wife isn't Nagy, okay? Job's wife experiences the exact same thing that Job experiences. We forget that. We forget that she loses everything as well, including including her healthy, righteous, noble husband. Now, physically, he's still alive, but he's a shell of a man. So we remember the story. Satan and God, they're, they're visiting, and God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, yeah, of course he loves you. He's got everything, right? He, he's got it all together. Let me take it and see if he loves you. And so God says, go ahead, Satan. Take everything from him that you want, but you've got to spare his life and leave his health. And so Satan does this, and we have this, just, this, this epic story after story of, and, and just as the one messenger leaves, the next messenger comes and says, you've lost everything, you've lost everything, you've lost everything. And when, then we have this beautiful, this beautiful saying from Job, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave this world. And so God and Satan have another conversation, and, and, uh, and Satan says, well, of course he still loves you. He might be broke. He might have lost everything, but he's still got his health. And for those of you who have s- suffered from chronic illness, you recognize there's some truth in this statement. Uh, it, you might like having a hot tub and a nice car, but you'd give those up to have your physical health. Once your health is, is jeopardized or once you're feeling sick or ill or, or pained, it becomes the focal point of your life. And so Satan says, yeah, I, I kind of went at this the wrong way. I took the things from him, but let me take his health, and then you'll see if he loves you. And so, so, so God says, go ahead, take his health, but you've got to spare his life. And so the, the Bible there says that he was given loathsome sores. And this is, this is part that, you know, these are the weird things that I focus on that others don't, but from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. So not from his feet to his head, from the bottom of his feet. So, like, he can't even walk, right? He's got these boils or these sores. Um, and so he is just a wreck of a human being. And this is when his wife comes up to him and says, would you just curse God and die already? We give her a really hard time about this. And we go, well, this, this woman lost everything as well. And, and, and she's not an ungodly or unrighteous woman for, for sharing her feelings. In fact, we're going to look at the next, you know, 30 chapters. Job shares his feelings with God. He says some pretty naggy things to God. He has some challenges to God, and, and it's okay to challenge God in, that, in the sense of asking him, what, what's going on here? I've, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to live for you. And, and just thing after thing after thing hits me. And so my model of ministry comes to us out of the book of Job. Chapter 2. Job has these three friends. There's a fourth friend. He shows up at the end. But the three friends get together, Job chapter 2, and it says this in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, 
They came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that he was suffering greatly. So these three friends, and and these are kind of know-it-all friends, right? We know that from from being blessed to, to know the story of Job, because the, the next 30-some chapters, they're, they're just kind of not the greatest of friends. These three friends who kind of think they've got it all together, they, they, think, they think they know, uh, they get together and they go, have you heard everything that's happened to Job? This is just terrible. Let us get together and let's go bring him comfort. And, and, and I just get this picture of these three friends kind of like walking up, not really knowing what Job's been. They've heard, right? They don't have email. They don't have text. They, they don't really know. It's not like Job's on Facebook taking pictures. Check out these loathsome sores. You know, they don't know exactly what Job is going through. And so they come, they come bebopping up to the scene. And you've got to remember, the last time they saw Job, he had colorful robes on. He had gold jewelry on. He had his sons and his daughters sitting around him. He had his, his cattle and his sheep. And, and life was good, and, and he was singing songs of merriment. They show up to see Job. They have no context for Job like this. And he's sitting in a pile of ashes naked. And he's there with a piece of broken pottery. And I don't know if you ever, if you have small children, like when they step on something, they just sit on the ground and they kind of pull their foot over like you couldn't imagine now at our age, right? And they pull, and they're just picking, and they come across Job, and you just get him, he's in a pile of ashes kind of sitting there, scraping skin off. And they see him, and they're like, what are you going to say to him? I got nothing. What are you going to say? And they sit down for a week. They sit down for seven days in silence. Later on, when his three friends are confronted, God confronts the three friends. Because they spend, after that week, they spend the next 30-some chapters confronting Job. And the basic theme is this. Job, it's evident to everyone in your life that you have sin. You've got sin in your life, and you're just not repentant. You've got sin in your life, you're just not telling others about it. If you would just admit your sin, uh, God would relent. And Job has this kind of frustration, like, I'm not, I don't have sin. I mean, yeah, sure, we all, we all struggle with sin. We all, we, all, we all sin sometimes, but habitual sin is so different than this, this kind of, uh, I, I made a sin one time and I repented. Job says, I, I haven't been in habitual sin. I'm not hiding sin. They go, well, you clearly are. God doesn't do this. God doesn't allow this if, if not. And, and so this goes on and on and on and on. And then Job kind of has these little dialogues with God, like, what are you doing, God? Which, how many of you can identify with that, right? Am I the only one who's ever had an argument with God? I, I said, I, the book of Jonah frustrates me so much. It's only four chapters long. There should be a fifth chapter of Jonah, right? Because when Jonah's on that, on that cliff and he says, oh, God, just kill me. If I was God, <laughs> right? Right? Like, you got it, right? <laughs> you have not because you ask not, right? Ba-boom, right? And there's, you know, and, and, and so Job's arguing with God. Like, we argue with God. And we have the audacity to sit before him and and go, I don't think you know what you're doing, creator of the universe. 
who formed me in my mother's womb, who gave me preordained works before the foundations of the earth. I don't think you know all the details that I know. And Job is saying this with God, and God is, you know, if you, if you can, he's a loving father just smiling at his child. Like, yeah, I know. I know that's what you think. But I'm teaching Satan a lesson, and I'm teaching the church a truth. And you are my illustration. And so, so, so Job 42, Job 42, we get to see that, that God decides to pay back these three friends. Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Man, that Job was the righteous man, right? Because he could have given it to him. He could have given it to him. So, so the words there, exactly uh, what is the Lord displeased with? He's displeased with the words that they spoke about God that were not right. So the three friends show up to Job, and they sit in silence. They don't screw up until they start talking. And that's my philosophy of care ministry. Nobody, nobody's coming to you because they think you have the answers. We sometimes just need friends to sit down in piles of ashes with us and scrape off our skin. And this is your function in leadership. Now, it doesn't mean that you ignore questions. It doesn't mean you don't give your suggestions or your input or pray for people. But Job's three friends angered God because they spoke what wasn't true. They didn't anger God when they sat in silence because they shared in Job's burden. Sometimes there's things that are just so bad that you don't have an answer for it. And you don't have to have an answer for it. Because to carry someone's burden sometimes means just to sit in a pile of ashes with them and scrape off the skin. So the APA, the American Association of Psychiatry, or psychology, I should say, got together, and they wanted to examine what was the most helpful component of the counseling room. And so the, so the, the population that they sampled was people who had been through counseling. We're talking about therapeutic mental health, psychotherapy. They've been through counseling, and on the other side said that was a good experience. Okay, so, so undoubtedly there's people who go through counseling and say that wasn't a good experience, so this is not part of the test population. Only people who identified that counseling is helpful to them. And they asked those people, thousands of them, what was the most helpful component of counseling? What did you find to be the most useful now, therapists will sit around, you go to conferences, and I've been to the conferences, and, and a speaker will get up, and he will explain why his model of counseling is the best model. Dialectic behavioral therapy, it's the best model, and here's why. Cognitive behavioral therapy, it's the best model. EMDR, it's the best model. And they'll get up and they'll, they'll argue about what the best model is. That was not what people found to be most helpful. That wasn't the model. What about the experience of the clinician? This guy's done it for 20 years. This, this lady's done it for 20 years. Uh, did that give you comfort? No, people didn't really care who the counselor was or how long they'd counseled. 
Um, what about the homework or the tools that you got sent home with? You know, practical application was that? No, that didn't. That didn't show up. The number one overwhelming component to what made therapy helpful was a place to belong in relationship. Ha! Almost how God called and created us as His children. So, so when people come in to meet with me as a as a licensed professional counselor. The, the number one thing I do is normalize their situation and give them a safe place. That bad thing happened to you? Yeah, that, that would be difficult. Huh. But you know, this is a safe room to talk about it. And over and over and over, I get praises about how great of a counselor I am and other counselors are, and I didn't do anything. I'll tell them that. I'm like, you know, I haven't done anything yet. I'm like, yeah, you have. No, I really haven't. I really haven't. I've just sat in your pile of ashes with you. Let you know it's going to be okay, because it will be okay. Um, there's, a, there's a saying I have, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say it, <coughs> because it, it's a word that is, it's not a cuss word, but it's a borderline cuss word. So, so if you're sensitive, I apologize in advance. Send your emails to Pastor Tom at uh, citychurch.com, whatever his email is. Um, <coughs> I went through the Army's chaplain basic training school. Oh, wow. I know you guys probably thought I did it when I was 12. Ten years ago, uh, I went through the Army chaplain basic training school. And, and when I went through it, the number one thing they taught us, so we're there for six months, five months, something like that. The number one thing they taught us, your job as a chaplain is to share in the suck. That's the word. Sorry if that bothers you. Um, share in the suck. When life is icky and crummy and sucky, your job is just to share in it. If the soldier's sleeping in the mud, you sleep in the mud. If, if the soldier has to stay up all night to pull fire guards, you have to pull an all-nighter with them. You're just there to share in it. You don't make it any better. You can't, you, can't, you can't really do anything about it, but you can be with them. And so your number, one, your number one priority is just to be with people. I had a chance to do this later that year. I uh, did 120 duty-day deployment for the, the, the 09 floods in North Dakota. So 120 days of sandbagging. And, uh, and, and I, can remember, I can remember being out there <sighs> picking up one more sandbag, and moving one more sandbag. Picking up one more sandbag and moving one more sandbag. And people take great comfort in knowing that their spiritual caregivers are picking up one more sandbag and, and moving one more sandbag. Because you get a chance to share with them when they're sitting in their pile of ashes. Most people don't need answers. Most people can't be helped in the way we would like it. So we fit in in a very unique way. I got to see this in action. Um, many years ago, many years ago, when I was my very first ministry, uh, I was I started pastoral ministry. I finished at the University of North Dakota, and I took my first associate pastor job in Mobridge, South Dakota, and I was there for two years. And this this elderly couple, I'll let you define elderly. I, it always gets people worked up, so I'll let you define elderly. Uh, this elderly couple just thought my wife and I 
were fantastic, which they very they had the gift of discernment for sure. And uh, they thought my wife and so this they were probably I'll oh, just 120 years old. That'd make everyone in here happy. And 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 here we are, 22. 22. I was 20. My wife was 19 when we got married. And so, so, uh, we, uh, it just took us in and loved us. And it was really almost kind of weird, you know, like the age difference. And they, he would, he would call me pastor and I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about this, you know, and this is, this guy's lived, you know, way longer than I ever could imagine. And, and so he ended up getting gangrene in his feet. He had diabetes and he, he died. He died. And so while he was in the last stages of dying, she called me, this 21-year-old, 22-year-old, 23-something like that, year old kid, to come be with her. She calls me and says, he's dying. And none of her kids were local, and they were all driving. They were trying to get there. And so I show up, and I sat in this room with this lady who'd been married to her husband for 60 years, and we sat with him while he died. And I got to be there. It was the first time I was ever with anyone when they died. <clears throat> and... Uh, and, and, and the doctor came in, and she says to the doctor, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. And I was like, and she's like, oh, I got everything I need right here. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that, you know. <laughs> you do know, like, his capabilities, right? Like, he can do things that I can't do. Um, and if any of you have done hospital visits, any of you visited somebody when they're, when they're in a really low place, watch their face light up when you walk in the room compared to the doctor or the nurse. And you can't give them anything physically, right? Not a thing. Like, no, you should probably get the doctor back in. She's like, he's going to die. She knows that, right? And so, so I'm in there. He dies, and I'll never forget it. She, she just holds me and cries, and I'm just sitting there, you know, a good Norwegian, just, I wouldn't know an emotion if it hit me with a hammer, you know, and <laughs> patting her back, you know, and, 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 and I went home, I went home to my wife, and I'm like, I, I, I just, I don't know, I didn't do anything, I just, and, and it took, it took me till just a few months later to get the power of good shepherding, so uh, I, sh- I told you about baby JL, cutest girl who's ever been born she's at home right now being perfect i'm sure and uh so so we have had six miscarriages okay so the first one though was our first child and and uh, it was a second trimester miscarriage so a little bit later okay and then we had our three kids we were super blessed and then we had five more miscarriages and that's why we called jail our little miracle and uh and so after that first miscarriage, it happened in the middle of, well, it happened, I was, full disclosure, I was playing horseshoes down in the park when it happened, and so I came home, and the neighbor had taken my wife to the hospital, and so I got there, and who's the first person you call? I call my pastor, and so he drops everything, and he comes to the hospital, and he gets there at, you know, eight o'clock at night, and, and I'm, and he sits with me for like an hour, and I'm like, oh, you go home, and his name's Paul, and Paul goes, <laughs> I ain't going anywhere, right? And he sat with me till the next morning. And then it hit me, oh, that's what I was doing with that lady. I was just sharing in a really terrible situation. I was just sitting in a pile of ashes scraping my skin off. And this is your call 
to bear with one another the burdens. And for those of you who are in leadership, to go the extra mile. Can I pray with you? Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for this call. Lord, I'll be the first to admit I feel inept and unqualified and incapable of providing care. Yet you choose to use me. And so I thank you for that. Now, as we go into our next sessions, Lord, these are going to be sessions of practical, school, uh, practical tools and, and useful models that we can, we can put into practice. And we know that ultimately it's to bring you glory. Lord, that when we share love and when we share care and when we share our gifts, we're doing that uh, because we're called to, but we're doing it because we bring you glory. And so for all the teachers who are involved today, that you would bless them, that the, the Spirit would move mightily and powerfully in their teaching, Lord. And when we come back in large group to, to learn more about uh, caring for others, Lord, that you would speak through me again as well. We do love you and we praise you and we ask that you would bless us as we go about this day and that everything we do would bring you glory and honor. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, uh, you, oh, here we go. Here.